Welcome to Saving the Game. This is Episode 70, Adoptionism and Ebionism. Part 1 of our Historical Heresies series, recorded Thursday, September 17th of 2015, with your hosts, Grant and Peter. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. And we actually don't have a guest host this week. I know. It's it's weird. Uh, two weeks in a row or two recordings in a row without a guest. Who would have thought? Yeah. Yeah. But we are getting back to basics in some other ways. So let's kind of get into those real quick. Do we have any news before we start our regular episode? I don't think we do. Okay. All right. Well, let's tell them about the new series. Then. Okay. So... We are starting a new theology-based series, much like our Virtues and Vices series, where we're going to be looking at some theological matters a little outside kind of your normal study and using those in-game while also learning about them as we go. And I say as we go because this one is some pretty deep historical research that we're doing. We're barely going to scratch the surface of these, just enough to kind of get you thinking about them. If you find any of them particularly interesting, we do want you to go ahead and do some research on those yourselves. So, what we're talking about in this series are early Christian and medieval heresies. Variant ways of thinking about God, the nature of God, worshiping God, that sort of thing. There's generally three categories of these. Christological heresies, which are arguments about or different ways of understanding or interpreting Christ and his relationship with God, different ways of understanding the Holy Spirit. Basically, anything that isn't Trinitarian is generally considered heretical or heterodox. Now, there are still some non-Trinitarian churches active today. We are generally Trinitarian on this podcast. That's about as ecumenical as we get. I do kind of want to hear from people who aren't Trinitarian and get their takes on things because that would be fascinating. But that's generally going to be our approach on this. When we talk about these Christological heresies, though, you know, we're going to be talking about things that aren't the Holy Trinity or different understandings of what that Trinity is. Second category is Gnostic Christianity. You may have heard of Gnosticism as its own heresy. Gnosticism is a huge category of heresies. There are a lot of different Gnostic heresies, some of which are really out there, some of which are things that still crop up today. So we're going to be talking about those. And then there's a third catch-all category of other weird stuff, (laughs) many of which are fascinating and very strange, like snake worshippers and things like that. Well, heck, a lot of the um, the weird kind of occult movements that Ken will talk about on Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff would probably at least loosely fall into that last other weird stuff category. Yeah, in some ways. But these are ones that specifically call themselves Christian as opposed to something else. And that is that is one part of this. We're talking about heresies, but these are people who called themselves Christian and believed that they were worshiping God correctly. Not always the case for occultists who are apostates in many ways. We should perhaps clarify heresy, apostate, and schism. Heresy is essentially a an argument about the nature of things. They're saying these are people who think that they represent the church correctly. You know, when somebody is declared heretic, 
It's saying this is not a traditional understanding. We think you are incorrect and we would like you to reject that idea and come back to us. But they are not necessarily saying I am not a Christian anymore. That's apostasy uh, is somebody who is a member of the church, a member of the faith, and who rejects it afterwards, throws it off. And then there are schisms, which are splits in the body of Christ that are unrelated to theology, or at least not related to major theological questions. Um, they may be splits over church organization, you know, which I'm sure would have some arguments back and forth based on scripture, but it's not fundamentally about the nature of God. It's about, well, how do we organize the church? Or I want to be in charge of this particular denomination and someone else does too. Those are schisms. Yeah, this is where denominations come from. Yes. I read somewhere that there's something like 700 new denominations created every year. Oh boy. Yeah, it's a little crazy. You know, worldwide, obviously. We're not talking about those. We're talking about heresies. And again, we're specifically talking about early heresies because A, they're unusual and interesting. B, we don't have to get into modern questions. To a certain degree, we're kind of playing it safe here. Yeah, I mean, nobody really has any skin in this particular game anymore. Yeah, with a few very rare exceptions. Yeah, which is useful in a couple of ways. First of all, it's not alienating to anybody, which is something that we're, we try and avoid on this podcast. And second right. of all, because it's... Um, it's this older historical stuff, and these are things that people actually did. It makes it really good for gaming inspiration. Right. Because what was heretical in the real world might just be true in your fantasy world, and that can make for interesting and rich setting design. Or it's something you can borrow that your players may not recognize, so steal away. History, the best resource to steal from. Yep. All right. So before we get into those, let's get into our scripture, shall we? All right. I think I'm going to give you Isaiah because you tend to be better at reading longer chunks of text, and then I'll take the two entries from John. Sounds good. So I'll start with Isaiah. This is Isaiah 56, 6 to 8. And the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. All right, and then I've got two, the first of which is John 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the second one that I have is John ten sixteen, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So we're going to approach this slightly differently than our Virtues and Vices series. We're going to talk about two different heresies in each episode. We might squeeze in a third if we're talking about some smaller ones with little historical information about them. Or we might just do one if we get one that there's a whole lot of interesting information on. Right. Uh, and so the two we're talking about today are adoptionism and ebionism. We've talked about heresies in general, so let's talk about the details of adoptionism. It's a Christological heresy, which is to say it's a an argument about the nature of God and Christ, kind of the, the exact specifics of 
who God is and what the relationship between God and Christ is. Adoptionism is generally a form of monarchianism, which was kind of a second century alternative model to Trinitarianism. And it's attempting to reconcile what these people saw as a problem in the Trinitarian model, which was basically you have these three hypostases, which is roughly translated as persons, although that's not generally correct. Uh, one God and three persons, we're talking about one Osia in three hypostases, uh, three existences. It's a slightly closer word, though still not quite right. Greek has specific meanings. And unfortunately, they don't always translate real well to English. Yeah. So adoptionism was proposed by Theodotus of Byzantium, and its basic tenets are, again, it's non-Trinitarian. Jesus was not divine at birth, but instead was a person adopted by God as his son and made divine, made not equal to God, subordinate to God, but certainly something more than a good person, a good teacher. Definitely holy and, in fact, divine in his own right. Theodotus claimed that this happened at his baptism. A few others have claimed that it happened at the crucifixion, at Christ's resurrection, etc. But Theodotus points to Luke 3.22, you know, where the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus after he's baptized, saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Theodotus points to it and says, this is when Jesus was adopted and made the Christ. One of the other tenets of adoptionism is that Jesus is currently divine. He just wasn't divine from the beginning. Like I said, he is subordinate to the Father, and the whole point of monarchianism in general is to maintain the fundamental monotheism of God. There is one God, not what they saw as a polytheistic worship of three different gods. Trinitarians would say, no, that's one God with three different unique and interesting aspects. This has come up a few different times throughout history. We're talking about the original form of adoptionism. There was a 6th century version, a North African and Spanish version of adoptionism that cropped up as the Arabian Empire, that large Islamic empire of the medieval age, stretched into that area. It even cropped up in the 18th century with some forms of Unitarianism. There are a lot of different variants of this, and unfortunately, they're all referred to as adoptionism. We're talking about the original one. Now, do they have um, names tacked onto them? You know, like, uh, I am i don't know this very well, so... But, like, Smithian adoptionism, where somebody's name was Smith who no, came up with it? Or? Uh, the only one I have found was 12th century neo-adoptionism. Everything else is adoptionism, which is really helpful, let me tell you. Okay, so it's all just lumped into one big pool of heresy then. Yeah. On the one hand, how very pragmatic. On the other hand, that really makes it hard to research. Yes. Yes, it does. And it's worth pointing out that these were very different. It's getting kind of deep into the weeds, but Spanish adoptionism would say, for example, that only Christ's human nature was adopted, but there is a divine son who took the form of a servant, as per Philippians 2.7, and that got adopted as divine. It, it's it's kind of deep in the weeds, but there are some differences. Okay. Ultimately, it's all about adopting this human person as something divine. Okay, so we've defined this pretty well. Um, I think so. 
<laughs> or not at all, but you know, yeah, we we've, we've def- done our best. Yeah, we've we've sort of de- we we've defined this as well as we are able. Certainly, yeah. How do we go about using this in a game? Right. So one of the goals that I want to talk about here before we get into using this is our approach for using these in game. One of the most common questions that we get on this podcast is, how do I make a monotheistic setting that is religiously interesting? The approaches that I have seen are twofold. Either religion is just sort of left out because everybody worships God. We roll with it, but there's no conflict there. Or there's just one religion that has the obvious truth, and thus the conflict is within the church, not between different sects or different religions. The other approach is having different understandings of God. We worship God and Christ in some form or another, but having different variants of that offers the possibility of having some unity and not getting too far afield for those who are uncomfortable with having gods who aren't God the Father in their game. Yeah, in essence, this basically gives you um, because these were these are heresies and these are rejected beliefs, but these people all identified as Christians. You can think of these as kind of a fictional lacquer that you can put over your actual religious belief to get something that looks a bit different, but is pretty similar once you drill down. Right. All of these that we're going to suggest kind of presuppose a generally monotheistic setting. Well, all but maybe one or two subpoints, but I, yeah. I said generally. Okay. So how do we use adoptionism specifically in game? The big thing that jumps out to me is this idea that adoption is something that happened to a person. And that immediately raises the question, well, if it happened once, could it happen again? Could there be more than one son, a holy family of sons and daughters? Well, here's another one. Does it happen regularly? Does it happen every so often? Right. Does the divine son re-enter the world every X number of years with some signs prepending it, things like that? Or, for that matter, is there always one? You know, when one dies, is, is another one appointed? Right. Now, again, we're getting pretty far afield from Trinitarian theology. The Trinitarian theology, I should add, that Peter and I both believe. Yes. Um, <laughs> Methodists and Presbyterians differ on certain things, but not on this. Yeah. But again, we're we're looking at ways to branch out your probably fantasy setting that has room yeah. for variations. It, 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 the, most of this is probably going to work the best in a setting with fantasy elements, whether regardless of whether the technology is Stone Age or people have lasers, you're going to have some fantasy elements. I mean, fantasy includes everything from GURPS fantasy to the Madlands, which is, I believe, like Stone Age or Bronze Age, all the way on up to Shadowrun, which is cyberpunk level, but they're still fantasy settings. Exactly. At any rate, if this adoption happened, could it happen again? This is one way you could get destined heroes in various different fantasy settings. I've been rereading Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series. Boy, that'll take you a while. I'm already on book five. I started a week ago. I'm fine. He gads, man. I read fairly quickly, and I know these books pretty well, so... You're not so much reading them for the first time in depth and detail as you are refreshing your memory of what's in there? In the first few books, yeah. As I go later on, obviously I have not read the later books quite as often, so I am I will slow down as, the, as we go. Not to get too far off topic here, but... <laughs> 
I promised my wife she could read the last book first before I did. And she started from the beginning and read through to the end with a child and a busy work schedule and relatively little time to read. So I'm just now getting (laughs) access to the books. Gotcha. This is the sort of thing where you've been waiting for this and now you finally have the opportunity, huh? We pre-ordered A Memory of Light. I'm just now getting to start the series. Wow. Okay, then. Yeah. Which is one reason I'm hammering through it as fast as I can as I've been waiting. Because you want to get to the good Sanderson stuff at the end? Well, and the good Robert Jordan stuff. Right, but I mean, you you haven't read a lot of the Sanderson stuff at the end, so... I just want to finish the series. Yeah. I, I want it to conclude. It's been hanging over my head since, like, high school. It's the sort of time? Yeah, exactly. Anyway, I mention the Wheel of Time series because for anyone familiar with it, and most of our listeners probably are to some degree, there is this idea of the dragon, a figure in history who appears again and again throughout this cyclical age and sort of a reincarnation system. Not exactly reincarnation, but it's similar. And is kind of appointed by the creator over and over and over. And it's never easy for him, but he has to do it anyway. Jordan drew very heavily from kind of the matter of Britain as an allegory for it. And the Dragon Reborn is sort of the Fisher King character. And in fact, you get some very clear Fisher imagery a few times. Anyway, you could have something like that, where it's a recurring feature of God that there is a son born or adopted again and again. Okay, so I had another one that does not presuppose a monotheistic setting, but it was it was too good to pass up. Um, in a polytheistic setting, this could be seen as an enormous responsibility, either alternatively or additionally, rather than just uh, an honor or a sign of favor, or even as a curse. For an example of that, if you're a very upright and noble sort of person and you find out you've suddenly been adopted by the god of trickery, how do you handle that? With some difficulty, I would assume. Yeah, that that could be interesting in a, a polytheistic setting. Or alternately, you could have somebody who's like this notorious criminal, you know, maybe is even waiting to be hanged and suddenly you find out that they've been adopted by some god of like light and purity or something. Well, what do the judicial officials do with that? You know, how does that affect the setting? What That raises some questions. How do those get answered? Right. And one of the big questions that comes up, regardless of whether this is some variant of monotheistic adoptionism or polytheistic adoptionism, how do you prove it? Yeah. Now, in some settings, this might be look at the person, because right. sometimes this comes with visible marks of some kind. Yeah. Yeah, fine. If somebody claims it and can't work miracles to prove it, Okay, that's interesting. Another classic trope is somebody who is claiming to be divine and is leading a church, and you don't think they really are, and that's something that you can dismantle. Heck, you could even go with the Dragon Age Inquisition model, where something weird happens to you, people interpret that as a sign of divine favor, you know or at least believe it's not, and you have to fight against this rumor about you that persists. Or play into it for your own advantage. That's another option. Yeah, a character who does that is the kind of character who is absolutely going to attract the enmity of PCs. Yeah. PCs hate him. This one simple trick, well, yeah. Okay, I need to go chew some soap. Hang on. Yeah, let's let's never refer to terrible clickbait, clickbait again. Yeah. again. Um, one other possibility that comes to mind here. And this is kind of generic, but 
because there are these different versions of adoptionism where they have the ultimate end state of the world and of Christ and of God. God the Father with a subordinate son who was human but is now divine. But there are subtle differences between different sects of adoptionists who believe Christ's divinity began at different points in his life or with different events. Those little differences can sometimes blow up into huge fights. I think we've all seen this, not just in church, but in marriages and in friendships, where little differences on things that really don't matter suddenly become the most important thing in the world. Those of you who have spent time on the internet have probably seen this. And if you haven't, are you sure you have actually been on the internet? Yeah. So I do like the idea of some division, some stark division between these two adoptionist sects who fundamentally believe the same thing, but have this one little difference between them that they've blown up into something so enormous that they cannot reconcile. Although that could be really between any two competing sects. I mean, of course, because this is a little bit unusual, I think this one works very well because it really is. Here's the same end state, the same person that we're talking about. We just think that this important event happened three years later. Yeah. The other one that comes to mind with this particular heresy as a template is the idea of you've got two different adoptionist sects that insist that a different adopted person is the correct one. Yeah, that could be very interesting, although possibly not fitting your version of, you know, this is the world as it is, you know, this is the nature of God in my setting, depending on how far you want to stray from standard Trinitarian Christianity. You know, if you, if you need to maintain a Christ figure, a specific Christ figure in your setting, that may or may not work. But it's certainly an option. I think we've squeezed all the juice out of this one. Should we move on to Ebionism? Yes, we should. We've probably got even more to say about Ebionism. All righty. So what's Ebionism, Grant? Ebionism is a Jewish-Christian movement of the 1st and 2nd century. It's very early in the history of the church. Ebionim roughly translates as the poor or the poor ones. In fact, the term was commonly used for Christians in general in the early church, very strongly emphasizing the voluntary poverty, that Acts 2 kind of church that you saw described in Scripture. And this particular group of Jewish Christians kind of adopted that as their name. One of the weird things about Ebionism is that we only know about it from the writings of its opponents. We have very, very little original Ebionite writing. All of it is polemicals from early church fathers writing against the Ebionites. They seem to have been theologically related to the Essene sects of Judaism, possibly a Christianized sect of Essenes. They may have been tangentially related to the Essene sect at Qumran, who were the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're really not sure. They also seem to maybe be the same as the Nazarenes, maybe not. Some scholars dispute that, some early church fathers conflate them, some don't. It's difficult to say. Yeah, when you're going back over 1900 years, it can be hard to untangle some of these historical knots. They didn't keep as good of records back then. Right, and again, we only have the writings of their critics and those arguing against them people who said these are heretical Judaizers, not Christians, so it's very difficult to say for sure. 
Right. And right away, right there is something that's kind of interesting, because if you have something that's only described by its opponents, that's going to kind of warp skew and mar the way that it's portrayed and may get things wrong. And yeah, I, you know, think about the last time since we're on the Internet here, by definition, being a podcast. Think about the last time that somebody who disagrees with you on the Internet depicted your position how you felt about that and how accurate it was. I can actually give you a, a specific gaming example. Okay. Before we get into the real basic tenets of Ebionite Jewish Christian faith. And let's stick with gaming, not religion or politics. Please. This is actually gaming, though. I'm starting up a sci-fi game, mostly played by email, with kind of my home group here. Kind of replacing the Birthright game, large strategic scale role-playing. And my group is this uh, little group of planets off in some corner of the galactic sector we're playing in that has focused pretty hard on nanotechnology and kind of grown up into that. That's their shtick. Okay. They are pariahs in the galaxy and the original, you know, ruling force in the galaxy has kept them bottled up in their systems because they are terrified of them on the assumption that basically each one of these people is kind of a walking, talking, gray goo scenario that's going to devour whole worlds with uncontrolled nanotechnology. In the meantime, I'm guessing the the planets that they actually live on are just kind of nice and clean because you've got all these nanomachines scrubbing up all the dirt. Yes. I'm not going to get into the, you know, the complex aesthetics that I've built out for them or the society that I've built out. They've got a lot of bureaucracy, but that's about it. That's the worst thing that they've got going on. Also, their terrible reputation as horrible, looming doom for the galaxy who should be destroyed. People write movies about invading hordes of swarm lords, as they call them, sweeping out from behind the, the containment walls that have been built up and devouring whole planets before heroes boldly nuke and glass the planets and kill them. Okay, then. We're actually quite nice. We just have this problem where the only people talking about us are people who hate and fear us. It's going to be an interesting diplomatic problem. That's That's got to be a little frustrating. Yes, which is why I created this, because I thought it was awesome. Anyway, but it's that same idea of if your only representation is someone else's negative opinion of your position, that's going to be interesting to try and deal with in-game. Let's talk about the basic tenets of Ebionism. Yeah, let's. So, first off, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They did not believe that he was divine. Jesus was a appointed king king, God's Messiah, king on earth, the savior of the Jews, but he was not a divine part of God in any way. So they basically considered him to be equivalent to, say, King David? Very similar. Okay. They also insisted on following Judaic law. The Mosaic law was critical. As you might expect, they thus rejected Paul as a Jewish apostate because Paul said, okay, well, the only thing that's really required is faith in Christ. So here are four very basic tenets of Gentile faith in Christ. These Ebionites required that converts essentially also be Jews. Okay, so before we continue here, let me, let me explain something that some of the listeners may not have noticed. The reason why we picked the three verses that we did at the beginning of the episode, I should say, is that those refute these heresies in one way or another. Right. So just as a you know, an additional one more time to confirm this, we are not endorsing either one of these heresies. We are looking at them in a historical and gaming context. Right. 
And we'll probably stop beating that horse after this first episode, but we do want to emphasize that. Okay, so these are people that basically see Christianity as an enhanced form of Judaism. That's pretty close. Yeah. They revered James, the brother of Jesus, uh, James the Just, as he was called, who, according to some accounts, led the Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem, the the church that Peter and the other apostles, who were also Jews, kind of had. James was sort of their successor. He was the bishop of Jerusalem. Well, and this is this is one thing that we do know about is that there was some tension between Peter and Paul. Yes, we see that very clearly in Acts. We do know that they only used one gospel. The problem is we don't know which gospel it was. Ebionites either used the gospel of Matthew that is in the commonly used Bible, the same gospel that's used in the Orthodox Bibles, the Protestant Bible, the Catholic Bible, etc., or the gospel of the Hebrews which is lost to us. It was a syncretic Jewish-Christian gospel. It only survives as a gospel that is referenced in other writings and very rarely quoted from. So we have tiny little chunks of it, but nowhere near the whole thing. Exactly. Also, to add to the confusion, it is sometimes attributed to Matthew. So what you're saying is if theological historians ever get their hands on a time machine, we'll know because suddenly we'll have the full text of this thing. Exactly. Okay. It is worth pointing out that the Gospel of Matthew is the most Jewish of the Gospels. You see Matthew repeatedly quoting from the prophets, from the law. His depiction of Jesus focuses much more on Jesus' relationship with the Israelites and the Jews as opposed to the world at large. Uh, Compare that to the Gospel of John, and you see a very clear difference between the two. The only other thing we really know about the Ebionites is they greatly emphasized voluntary poverty. Again, their name means the poor. They were very, very strict about that. Everybody lived as the poor. They seem to have stuck very closely to Mosaic law, but some sources also claim some or all of the Ebionites were also Gnostic. Now, we're going to get into Gnosticism in another episode, so... I don't want to get into it here. But if you're listening to this at some point long after we've recorded both episodes, go listen to our episode on Gnosticism if you want to know more about that. And again, it may be that these were the Nazarenes. It may be that these have been conflated with other groups who were Jews but who adopted Gnostic traditions, Gnostic beliefs. We don't know for sure. The only other thing I want to point out is that the Ebionites have kind of come back into discussion, certainly not necessarily in vogue, but some of the the same traditions and arguments that the Ebionites had and the arguments against them have kind of come back to the surface with the reemergence of Messianic Judaism that counter-missionary groups have kind of brought back up in the 20th century and a little bit more into modern day. We're not necessarily going to get into that, but this is one of those examples where just because something is Old history doesn't mean it has no impact on today. Okay. So, using Ebionism in your game. Peter, start. All right. So, legalistic sex with extra rules are an ancient religious theme in human history. The Ebionites are hardly an isolated example. In fact, um, Jesus kind of took the Pharisees, which were another group that was very legalistic and rules-focused to task several times in the scriptures, as I'm sure probably 95% of our listenership knows. The idea that religion can be boiled down to a set of do's and don'ts is a very, I think, tempting notion. 
It, it is certainly attractive because you can easily, you know, check off all the boxes and say, yep, I'm good. It, it takes a... Literally, I am good yeah, because I do these things. It, it takes a certain level of uncertainty that, well, I, I personally would argue that more mature faith just has to grapple with and accept that they're going to have to keep grappling with out of the equation. Well, it, it takes a certain amount of faith as opposed to looking at a checklist. Yeah. Still, having these extra rules is certainly very satisfying, and it's a good opportunity to have, you know, characters or groups who have odd and restrictions that are occasionally inconvenient. The Book of Exalted Deeds from D&D had uh, a list of vow feats and options that were basically, hey, if you do this thing and don't break your vow, you get more power. Sometimes bonkers amounts of extra power in some particular yeah. cases. Uh, you're thinking vow of yes, poverty, Yes, I am. You? Appropriately. The vow of poverty was not anywhere near as powerful as people made it out to be. It was good, but the total stat bonuses at level 20 were actually not as good as what a 20th level character was supposed to have. And that's the power game we're talking Yeah, but if you were playing a monk and you... There... Oh, man, you should have seen all the monk weapons they had. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> at any rate... Seriously, yeah. monk stuff? Ridiculous. Anyway, again, the power gamer's talking. Yeah. But it is worth pointing out that a lot of this was, oh, hey, here are boxes and gotchas, right? Gotchas are kind of a big part of this because anybody who says, aha, you did this thing that you weren't supposed to do, you broke some little rule, gets to jump on well, you Well, and kind of to reference back to the book, but also to some of the, the actual religious thought along these lines, those gotchas are permanent. Like those, those vow feats, if you take a vow of celibacy and you break it once, no matter what you do, you will never get the benefits of that feat back. Which is somewhat different from Mosaic Law, which had the idea of making sacrifices or giving back and uh, repaying that debt, paying that off, as I understand it. I'm going to actually reference a book that I am partway through but haven't finished yet that was recommended okay. to me by our friend Derek White, who has been on the podcast once before and who we should really get back on again at some point. Yeah. But at any rate, um, it is a book by Richard Beck called Unclean, where it talks about disgust psychology and its relationship to religion. It's a really fascinating read. Uh, the author, Richard Beck, is a very uh, engaging and interesting writer, and he makes some very good points about how certain types of moral thought work. I would definitely recommend picking that book up if uh, if this sort of thing is interesting to you. Oh, good choice. Uh, remind me to link that in the show notes. Will do. Uh, while you're writing that at the top of our outline, another piece of this that works well, this idea of legalism and kind of a, a restricted sect, it's very typical of knightly orders and monastic orders. You have this idea of self-denial and a rules-centric faith. Monastic orders and knightly orders, which often, uh, I'm not going to say often, which occasionally overlapped, they had some very strict rules about what monks of the order were supposed to do or what knights of the order could or could not do. And those sometimes were interesting, like uh, you know the Templars, which we occasionally refer to, were supposed to ride two to a horse because there were not supposed to be enough horses for everyone to have their own horse. Uh, monastic orders often had very strict rules about how much one could eat in a day, you know, where you were bread and water this number of days and then a cup of wine on particular days or every X 
day, very formal, restricted process. And again, that idea of voluntary poverty. There's another place where this kind of um, systematic and rules type thinking sometimes comes into play, even in the real world, as kind of an acknowledged aid for accomplishing a task. And that is what I would call a formalized redemption process, uh, something like AA's 12-step program or something. It's like you have to follow these 12 steps to kind of be able to call yourself, you know, truly sober at the end or... For non-American listeners, AA is Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes. Sorry. That's fine. So you can look at that sort of a thing, too, as another way where a lot of this rule-centric stuff would still exist, but maybe would have a different set of guiding ideas or principles behind it. Yeah, that could work. There's another possibility in terms of using Ebionism in your game or something like it. Having what I would almost describe as an intermediate faith, something that's not quite in the old way of things, not quite in the new way, something in between, kind of people caught in the middle, is an interesting possibility, right? You have these Jews who say, yes, this is the Messiah, but this idea that Christ is for everyone in the world, again, to, to quote from John, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. That idea that John writes about, that Christ is for everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, I can see that being very difficult for the Jews, the chosen people of God, to accept. And so you have people who just can't accept that. And so if you have a sect that exists as part of this transition, especially if you have you know something like a Christ figure in your setting who has come and gone, or if this is in the real world and you're kind of doing a realist fantasy setting. Having something like the Ebionites who are trying to hang on to both and find this syncretic middle ground can be very interesting because in a sense they're a little bit pitiable. They also are really not loved by either side. You have the Jews who reject them because they say, no, you know, the Messiah hasn't come. You know, this Jesus was not the Messiah. And then you have the Christians who reject them because they say, no, you're basically Jews. You're rejecting the divinity of Christ. Neither wants them, and yet here they are. One other thing kind of dovetailing off of something similar, it's entirely possible that all three groups could have been around for long enough in your setting where they're all considered legitimate. You can see this kind of with my denomination where you've got the Catholic Church, which was kind of the original thing that the Church of England, the Anglicans, split off of. And then John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, split off from that. So you've got the Methodists, which is me, the Anglicans, which is our friend Shannon Dixon, and the Catholics, which actually that was Katrina. So we've got three different people who have been on the podcast that can kind of stand in as uh, examples of three different sects that were created by, you know, schisms of one type or another. And they're all still there and they all still interact with each other. So just because a group calved off of the side of another one doesn't mean that they can't eventually see each other as something other than enemies. Yeah. And again, uh, I think there's some common ground and a lot of pathos, if you will, in any group that embraces voluntary poverty. I think that resonates yeah, with us. It definitely does. That That is something that you can kind of see as admirable, even if you don't choose to do it yourself. And that is very... Or agree yeah. with them. Well, it's like, you know, I don't I don't agree with Gandhi, for instance. Theologically speaking, I'm not a Hindu. 
but a lot of the stuff that he did and you know the ascetic lifestyle that he lived in that sort of thing that's you can look at that and it's indicative of a certain character of person yeah or or Jane's you know who again have a tremendous respect for life but obviously I I believe yeah. differently that's about all I've got for ebionism you got anything else no i think that's about all i've got too so all right then i think we should probably wrap this one up uh, I do want to hear feedback on this episode yeah, and too. the topic in general. Let me know, let us know if this is something you're interested in us continuing. It's going to be kind of irregular in the same way that our Virtues and Vices series was, although there's a much larger set of things to draw from here. Yeah, really. If you look for a list of Christian heresies and even just limit it to stuff that was, you know, medieval or older and notable, that's still a great big old honking list. Yeah. Give us some feedback on it. want to know what you think about it. And we will catch everybody next time. Also, I do want to thank a couple of people who have left us reviews recently. Uh, I don't have names, but uh, we've gotten one iTunes review and a few other nice shout-outs here and there on the internet. And I want to thank everybody who's spreading the word about us and giving us feedback about the podcast. That's always helpful. Yeah, in helpful. fact, actually, uh, we might as well call this out. This series came out of a discussion that we had after somebody left us a review. So yeah. the feedback does matter. We do take it into consideration. We might run off with it in a direction that you're not expecting because we're kind of like that. But uh, we definitely appreciate and pay attention to feedback that we get. So from both Peter and myself, I want to wish everyone a good two weeks. Happy gaming. Happy hearthstoning. I'm off to go make werewolf characters with my wife and try and write up a whole star system. So, yeah, we'll catch All you right. next time. Have a good one, folks. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.